to pray with me? Heavenly Father, give us the um, give us the faith to enter into this parable um, and into these words and see in them a gracious invitation to choose life today and encounter a master who wants to enjoy the fruit of our labor. In your name I pray, amen. So this morning we'll be looking at this parable of Jesus. If you'd like to uh, turn in your Bibles to um, chapter 25, it'll just give you a little uh, context there. Um, these are hard parables. Um, there's a, there's a, an intensity and an urgency to these parables. And when I refer to uh, these parables, um, I'm talking especially uh, about the parables that Jesus teaches in Jerusalem here. Um, so in, in, in terms of where this parable occurs, uh, this is towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, and this is as he's left his teaching ministry in Galilee, and he has come to Jerusalem now for his final days before his suffering and death on the cross and his resurrection. And in Matthew in particular, this is an important kind of group of parables that Jesus teaches. There, there's, a, there's kind of a neat uh, thing that Matthew does in his gospel. He kind of, he kind of draws a, uh, analogies between the life of Jesus and Moses, which will resonate with a Jewish audience in particular. And uh, just as Moses gave uh, speeches and delivered teaching, so Jesus uh, gives speeches and delivers teaching. And this is the final kind of course of Jesus' teaching ministry. And and you'll find that when Jesus is in Jerusalem at the very end, his parables are urgent in a special way and he's really confronting now the powers that are arrayed against him. He's challenged now by the Jerusalem authorities who do not like the, uh, the, the um, instability that they feel in Jesus' ministry. You know, the, this is shortly after he's cleansed the temple. Very radical and dangerous act. And, and now they're starting to um, confront Jesus and Jesus is sharpening in some way the contrast between his agenda and the agenda of, well, really ultimately the enemy. And he wants the Jewish people to hear a very decisive word uh, that that it's there that Jesus is not just simply a neutral or or or, or transitional figure, he, he's actually the Lord and the King and the Messiah, and basically uh, Jesus is saying you kind of fall out on two sides of that issue. You either believe God's agenda and align with it, or you don't, and this either or perspective of Jesus is sharpened in this parable and it's meant as a mercy to people. It's meant as a mercy to people to not be confused about what's going on. And, and these parables are actually very accessible stories, as hard and challenging as they can be. Uh, they're, they're meant to allow people to make that choice and, and hear the word properly and to bring discernment too. In some cases, just like it was with Moses and Pharaoh, uh, the word of God hardens a person's heart. And that too is a, a revealing uh, part of Jesus' ministry. 
But for us here who have responded to the word of Jesus, how are we to take this parable? How are we to, uh, how are we to hear it aright and allow its truth to work into our hearts? Um, and I think there are challenges in this reading that I want to acknowledge right up in the front of it. And first of all, one thing that you'll find in these parables is that the master, you know, there are several, for those of you who are kind of familiar with Jesus' parables, there's one of his favorite analogies is the master, the, uh, the, the king, the, gar- the, the chief gardener. And what is he always doing? He's always going away. Isn't that frustrating? <laughs> the master comes and he does such things and then he goes away. You're like, ah. You know, I thought this was supposed to be the other way around, you know. Um, but this is, this is true to life. The master is going away. And, it, and we ask, might ask ourselves, how come he's not sticking around? You know, we, we sometimes ask, well, where is God when I need him? You know, he seems to have gone away. And then there's also the question of his coming back because these masters always come back. And sometimes they come at the most inconvenient times. Right, and, and catch us doing things that, that we may or may not uh, want to be caught doing. And so we, we have to ask ourselves, what, you know, why isn't he here and when is he coming back? That's a challenge we confront in some of these parables. Parables are, are, like I say, meant to acknowledge these feelings and address them. You know, let's not just pretend that these things don't exist. We do experience, and Jesus wants us not to be surprised particularly his disciples. He wants them not to be surprised that the master will be going away, but it doesn't mean exactly what you think. Jesus' parables teach us not to be surprised by the situation, but rather how to recognize his presence. Uh, so we don't ignore these words. We need to listen to what Jesus says about it. Now, th- there's another thing that happens in these parables that's common, and that's that the main character who's supposed to resemble God is so unlikable. You know, consider the unjust judge. Well, okay. <laughs> and that's actually a common Jewish teaching technique. It's moving from the, th- it's drawing the contrast between the lesser and the greater. And it it works something like this. If even the unjust judge can get it right sometimes, how much more will the righteous judge? If you as earthly fathers know how to give good gifts, how much more will will your heavenly father give good gifts? That's a rabbinic technique. And so these masters are, are meant to highlight, actually, by contrast, the exceptional goodness of God that's almost too much to imagine. So um, uh, if, if the master is going away and returning and stewarding, you know, how much more will our father, the good Lord and master, do his thing? I think it's also, it's, it's, I don't know how to say this, other than it's kind of a, a validation of our imagination you can't access these parables if you don't imagine things, right? This is not math, thank God. Um, Sorry for you mathematicians, you might prefer it to be math. Um, You can't access this teaching if you can't imagine something. You know, you can, think of your earthly father. Can you imagine how much better the heavenly father is? You know, this is, validates that you have to deploy your imagination to think about. It. Imagine this, Jesus is saying. It's like this. Imagine this. 
So it immediately begs a question for us this morning, which is this, what do you think about God? What do you think about God? Is he a bad guy? Is he a good guy? Is he absent? Is he present? I mean, there are reasons to think that God might be the the bad guy, you know? And that's what's interesting about this parable. You have two kinds of people here, two kinds of servants. One who whose perception of God is as, uh, well, perception of the master, if I kind of stay within the parable. Sorry if I jump back and forth between those two a lot. These servants, their perception of the master is totally okay. And then there's this one guy who says, I was afraid. All right, so right then and there, you have, for reasons we don't really know, right, Jesus doesn't let us into the backstory of these characters, two, very happy, very satisfied, one, not so much. And I think it's good for us to ask ourselves, who do we, where are we in this parable? Are you, are you kind of automatically saying, wow, those two, those two servants, man, I'm inspired by those guys. Or are you thinking, yeah, I, I kind of get that. I'm, that guy makes me nervous. I'm a, lot, I'm a lot like that guy. I'm kind of afraid of this godly figure person. It's good to ask ourselves, what's our perception of God? And not to race too fast over that because that's, that's where the power and the tension of this parable is gonna get us to is what do we really think about God? But surprise, Jesus says, uh, this isn't what it looks like. God is actually very, very good, and that's Jesus' message. Actually, Jesus' message in this parable is Jesus, God is so very good. In fact, it's very pointed to me that just a couple chapters earlier, after Jesus has to, has to confront the Pharisees with very, very harsh words. He's brought to this and at chapter three, verse 37, this just, just difficult, it's difficult to hear Jesus say this, but he says, oh, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? That's God's disposition how often would I have done this? Over and over again, my disposition is as a hen who longs to gather her brood under her wings. That's the God that Jesus is, uh, is portraying uh, in his ministry. And his parables have that flavor um, and, and, that's what he, uh, and that's what he's coming to say. So there's one question, which is that, is God good? And how do we relate to him? Now there's another question here I think that stumbles people, that's that people seem to be treated so unfairly in these parables. Do you ever run into that in your own mind? Like, man, that's kind of a harsh treatment. I mean, this guy gets invited to the wedding and doesn't have the right clothes, and then he's kicked out of the pool. You know, you have the 10 vir- virgins, you know, and some just don't have their oil, and man, the, you know, and they're cast into outer darkness. Here this guy, you know, has, he's, he, he's, he's afraid, and he buries the talent. He could have stole it, it could have been worse. You know, but, but he, and we can, if we're not careful, start to think that God's being unfair. But again, you know, I don't want to soften 
the words of Jesus, there are actually stakes in this. There's a consequence to unbelief. And if Jesus were simply to ignore that consequence and pretend that there's, it's not there, that would be terribly unmerciful. If Jesus didn't have a heart of compassion, he wouldn't tell these parables at all. He's telling these parables so that the people with ears, those who have ears, let them hear. He wants you to hear and he wants you to encounter the good God in whose character we can actually trust. And actually, Jesus is not unfair. There's a whole different way of looking at these people's responsibility, and he's trying to reveal to the Jewish people their complacency, their rebelliousness, their hard hearts. I mean, there's a whole tradition of the prophets coming into Israel saying, hey, wake up. You know, there's a a price to pay when you're God's people and you ignore him. And I don't want that. So let's take a step back and kind of get a different perspective on this parable. Jesus does not want us to be afraid. He wants us to be sober-minded. He wants us to wake up. He wants us to have the right kind of fear that comes from of what happens if I ignore this God and reject this message. But he doesn't want you to be afraid of God. And the reason I can say that is because that was the mistake of that servant who buries his treasure in the ground. It says, I was afraid. And God doesn't want us to be afraid. So let's, uh, let's look at this parable together. And first of all, there's a couple of uh, points I want to bring out. First of all, God gives talents, this, the, talents meaning financial resources, or th- this is, a, this is a, a metaphor, of course, for the, the, the tangible value that is in your life that you are meant to be a steward of. Could be money, it could be a, a physical attribute or a, a skill, It could be uh, a responsibility as a parent for your children. There's some asset that you have, some tangible expression of a value over which you have some stewardship. And if you'll note, everybody gets them. This is not a story of, well, some people got it and some people don't. Every single servant in this story gets these kinds of gifts. So by analogy, we all do. All of us have a value of tangible concreteness in our life that we have the joy of stewarding. All of us do. It does not matter how, what we might think of our life, and I'll get into that in, in a second, how many mistakes we've made and all that kind of stuff. All of us have a tangible, concrete expression of value that God gave for you to be a steward of. That's very affirming. And you'll notice no one's left out and there is absolutely no special congratulations for the one that have more and the one that has less. None. God didn't say, oh, I gave you more because I like you more. It just, we don't, I think it's just an acknowledgement in a certain way that, that it's, it's pointless to compare ourselves with anyone, pointless. Uh, and, and we get into this all the time, comparing ourselves with other people. And there is no cause for that. None. Paul does the same thing in his letters. Uh, I think about it. He said, how can, the, 
I, I, I won't get the body parts right, but the I say to the foot, you know, I'm better than you, that kind of a thing. It just, this comparison with other people has no validity in scripture at all. Jesus doesn't say the one, you know, because you're, you're just not so good, I'm gonna give you one, and you're so much better, you get five. It just doesn't come into the story. Everybody has their own, their own talent, and that's the point. And it's very affirming to think that everybody has them, and it doesn't matter how much you have in comparison to anybody else. So be delivered of comparing your life with somebody else's resources and gifts. Just be delivered from it. It it doesn't come into the story. The point isn't to emphasize what we lack. The point is to emphasize what we have. And I am sure all of us could bear witness that what we have is probably more than we can handle already. (laughs) Right? What we have is what God has given us. And that's the point, not what we lack, not how much we don't have, how much we have so I'd, I'd ask the question this morning, what do you have? What is your talent? And again, I'm not speaking so much just only in your skill. What is the tangible expression of the value of something that you can affirm in your life as a special gift from God? What do you have that you would qualify in that? You may not have many. This isn't just what are all the things you're good at. This is very specific. This is very specific to your commission as a child of God. So I'm not asking you what are you good at. Those couldn't be related. It's good to know what you're good at. Um, But I'm asking something even more specific. Can you identify in your own life those qualities, those assets of tangible expression? As a father, I certainly would include my children in there. As a husband, I include my marriage. So you will probably have your own expressions of that something that God has given you to be steward over. Now, there's a second kind of surprising element here to me, and that's that can you believe it? the master's gone away and he's put you in charge of your gift? That actually is quite an amazing and blessed responsibility. One that God has prepared you for, incidentally. So your life matters not in comparison with anybody else, but on its own merits. In other words, God hasn't asked somebody else to be a steward of your talent. He's asked you to be a steward of your talent. And that's very liberating. You get to decide. The master's gone away in that sense. He's gone away and he's commissioned you to be actively involved in the stewardship of your gift. You know, when I was a young man, I wanted to be a man. I thought that was kind of a good thing. I know that's kind of a little bit confusing in today's day and age, but I wanted to wear a suit like my dad wore a suit. And I thought that was pretty neat. Uh, my, my son Michael seems to be kind of molded in that same direction. And, and I thought it would be great to have leather shoes and pants with creases in them that match the jacket and a tie that somehow you, mat- somehow you learned to magically put together. I had aspirations like that. And I remember uh, um, when I went on my first big date with Rebecca when I was in high school, I, I was able to borrow one of my dad's suits, the whole three-piece thing, and I, I, I probably scrounged around for a watch file. I don't know. I want it to be the whole thing. And 
my dad said, okay, you can have my suit, you can drive a car, and you can go out on this date. You know, go. And I didn't sit there and think, man alive, what a burden. I mean, this guy can't take care, I mean, why is he making me do all this stuff? You know, why, how come he's giving me all, all these decisions to make? I mean, this is really a heavy burden on me. You know, I, that is not how I related to it. I thought, this is awesome. I get to make all the decisions. Now, it was stressful for other reasons, you know, on a big first date and you're trying to be a little bit older than, you know, than you are and take your girl to a nice restaurant that, you know, that, that, that was a whole, that, that'll be for another sermon story. But, um, <laughs> but what I didn't resent was the liberty to put my thing together. I loved it. That's more what Jesus is getting at here. He's not saying, I'm giving you way more than you can manage and you have no resources. No, he's saying, look, this thing that you've got is the thing you want. It's the thing that you long to have stewardship over. He's not going away in the sense that he's leaving us without all kinds of resources. I'll get that in in a minute. But, But I want you to hear this as a liberating word. A liberating word that you have the awesome privilege of doing God's work for this thing that he's asked you to do. And it's hard, but it's good. I just want you to hear that, that, that the absence of the Father is not a withdrawal of God's care. It's actually an, it's actually an empowering of his people. And that's why you'll find these two stewards that, that do the right thing, they're thrilled, as far as I can tell. This other guy's not so thrilled. So let's look at these two servants. These two servants, they're amazing to me. They are so aligned with the master. They're like, yeah, we got that. They, there's, you don't, Jesus doesn't give, you know, there's no mental rumination. There's no, you know, this other guy, he's like, he's trying to stewing about this and plotting and playing. These guys were like, they're, uh, we're on this. They're so aligned with the master. They're so productive. They double the income. Man, I'd, I'd like to invest in that kind of program. They're so productive, and they're proud. Jesus, come, they're like, kid, Jesus comes back, hey, look what we did. I mean, you don't get a sense with these servants that there's a shred or a, a drop of anxiety. It's amazing to me. Like, you know, I know Jesus is kind of efficient in the way he tells stories, but still, I mean, the, these guys are on their game, and they love the master. They're, they're right with the program. They don't think and ruminate. They go to work, and they're proud of what they do, and they can't wait to tell the master about it when he returns. That's those guys. I love that. And I think that's the way it's supposed to be. I'm not saying it's supposed to be easy. Jesus never says it's gonna be easy. But I think those two, two servants, I think that's what it's supposed to feel like. I think that's what it's supposed to feel like. An inherent trust in the master, a delight to be steward over the talent, a joy in seeing the fruit of your labor in this life, and an anticipation of his return so that you can hear, enter into my joy. That's, what, that's how Paul the apostle lived his life. Very difficult life. But Paul quotes this very thing. He says, he longs to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And Paul says, I will. I mean, he knows that, and that's what he's telling the church in, in, in our New Testament reading. He says, I know that your destiny is to hear that, 
But the storyline narrows to this outlier, this guy on the outside who hides his master's money. Why did he do that? Why did he do that? It doesn't say that he hides the money because he's lazy. I, I, I read several kind of older commentaries and, and that, that seems to crop up a lot, you know, that he was just idle. Okay, that could be. I don't want to dismiss that out of hand. Um, but here's what I see in this. First of all, it says very explicitly in chapter, in chapter uh, 25, verse 25, I was afraid. There is a nut of fear in this man, which means that he doesn't really know his master. And you can see that in this parable. His master's confusing to him. He doesn't understand what this guy's doing. I, he's... You know, he's reaping where he hasn't sown. I, that's not a very good, you know, comment to make about your master. I saw you getting corn from the neighbor's farmyard. You know, that's not good. You know, I, you're, you're gathering where you did not scatter seed, meaning you had other people do all the work. You know, what they used to do, they used to throw up the, the wheat and the chaff would blow away and it was a very, all this is very labor intensive. So basically he's saying to, to the master, hey, you know, other people did all the work and you went somehow and got all the, the fruit. I don't get what you're doing. I'm not with this program. And he just doesn't know what, what the master's up to and, and so he's afraid of this guy. He feels like he's dishonest. He feels like he's lazy. He feels like he's disorganized and out of alignment with what he thinks should be right and he's offended by these things. And it's hard for me not to imagine that Jesus may have meant, especially to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, hey, you know, Jesus, we're offended by your harvest of sinners. We don't like these people you hang out with. The tax collectors, the Gentiles, the adulterers, this is not good. You know, we're not with this program. That's what Jesus, I wonder, if, is what's behind this. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those that opposed Jesus, they did not connect Jesus with what God does. They thought they knew what God does. They, they thought, hey, you know, God is this way, and Jesus, you're not acting the way that God does, hanging out with those people and saying those things and overturning the table in the, in the temple. How dare you connect yourself, Jesus, with what we know? And in their own way, they wouldn't have said this, but they were very desperately afraid of Jesus. That's why they killed him. And they said to Jesus, I don't want to be a part of whatever that is that's going on. And Jesus, Jesus wants to say, look, how could this be? How can this man be so disconnected from the will of the master? The servants are proud of their labor. They're confident. And what does the master do? He doubles the investment. I mean, it, really, when you look at it from that perspective, it's the, you know, the cup just runs over. They get five talents. They make ten out of them. The Lord doubles it. It's just, it's, it's just amazing. It's amazingly resourceful. And, and, and by contrast, what happens to this man who's afraid? It's, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. There's no nothing. It lies in the ground. There's no doubling of investment. There's no gathering and more. In fact, what he has is taken away. And he, he does not experience the joy of his master. This is an extraordinary contrast. On the one hand, fear and shame and regret and punishment. And on the other hand, pride and confidence and joy and generosity. I hope we're beginning to be able to relate to these two things, at least as a personal challenge to us. Do we know God the way that he wants to be known? 
the way that Jesus wants us to know him? Do we know God as a good father? I mean, when I say no, I don't mean intellectually. Because you, you can't trust somebody only with your intellect. You can think right thoughts, but you cannot actually feel trust if you don't, if you don't experience and encounter God as good. And I struggle with this. I think we all do. I, I struggle sometimes in my, in my feeling of God as being trustworthy. And it's, it, it's no shame in saying that. It's something that I repent of only because I know God, that God doesn't want me to know him that way. We must know God as Father, not just in our minds, but in our hearts, to, be, to know him as fundamentally good. Not often good, not usually good, not sometimes good, not unpredictably good, fundamentally and always good. That's taken me time even to shift my own thinking in that. I kind of wait for the shoe to drop sometimes. God's usually good. That's the way it comes out of my feelings. But, but to require of myself, Steve, no, God is fundamentally and always good by nature. That's the way that we need him to be known. What does that mean for me? For me, it means to know that God is always generous. He ha- there's no lack of resource. There's, this is compounding interest off the chart in God's kingdom. Another question we can ask ourselves is, have we experienced the grace of investing our best talents in the service of his good Lord, of this good Lord? Have we actually experienced the, the process of identifying what, is, what are those talents and, and have we experienced the joy of stewarding them? Now, I want to say here, this is not about perfection. Uh, this is not, this, I don't think the point of this story is to say that we're going to do this without making a lot of mistakes. Part of stewardship in this context will require forgiveness, it will require humility. I, 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 I steward my relationship with my children, and I, you know, I blow it frequently. And, and, and here's what stewardship of my gift might look like. I have a stewardship of my relationship with Michael. And, and that stewardship should have grace and humility and love and wisdom and discernment. And, you know, I can recall a time where I really lost my temper and it was, it was, I blew it. And not only did it Michael, but my wife wasn't so happy either. <laughs> now, stewardship is not, okay, I, I, I'm gonna forget that thing happened, I'm gonna try to be more perfect next time. No, stewardship means, okay, I've got to ask for forgiveness for two, from two people. I've gotta humble myself. That's stewardship. Stewardship isn't just doing the right thing. It's also recognizing when we've done the wrong thing. Some things we cannot fix. And I know many of us are struggling in situations like that. That does not mean that you cannot be a faithful steward of what you have now and, the, and what you're facing right now. Remember, God as your father has your life in control. It may not feel like that. But 
it doesn't mean that just because things are chaotic or because things, certain things can't be fixed or you don't know what's gonna happen doesn't mean that in this moment you can be a steward of that talent. Fathers can be fathers. Mothers can be mothers. You know, if, 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 if we had a work that we were doing and we felt like we failed, then the stewardship of that is to trust I felt in 2008 when I came back from Israel that I, I felt like a miserable and total failure. I mean, my, my greatest aspiration was the job that I had in Jerusalem. I had no plan B. And it, I, I, I could not have fathomed that it would come to what it did, it did there. Now, I, that was not the end of my stewardship. It actually was in some sense the very beginning of a new asset and it took me a long time to realize that, but I think that's going on for a lot of us. Sometimes the asset that we thought was there is lost, but God is not withholding assets from you. It could be the rebirth of a whole new one that you could not have recognized in any other way. And the hardest thing to hear was for the Lord to keep saying, Steve, I've not lost confidence in you. I'm still giving you the choice to steward now, um, that's nothing that we can do on our own. The rediscovery of that asset, asset required, in my case, this, this community, the body of Christ, here at Light of Christ, my friendship with Eric and Jeannie and many others here who, who, kept, who kept the gift before my eyes when I couldn't see it myself. It's interesting in Jesus' parable that there are always more than one person that's a part of this. We're meant to do this alone. Friends, the, the result of all this is the joy of the Lord. That's his greatest gift for you, is the joy of the Lord. Each one of us here is invited into that joyful relationship. Each one of us here has an asset and a gift. And friends, if you don't know what that is, that's okay. It takes time sometimes to discover or rediscover something. I went through a great period of rediscovery and I'm it wasn't the first time and probably won't be the last. Right? This parable is meant not to, it's meant to make you sober, yes, because I don't want to diminish the consequence of ignoring. And friends, I hope there's not a person here who will say, you know what, I, I just don't get any of this. That person ends up in darkness and it's eternal and it's bad. But Jesus wants us to be able to see that he is offering himself here and all of his resources to redeem what you may have thought was lost and so that you can enter into the joy of not just a little bit of return value, but more than we can possibly, a compounding of a compounding, <laughs> a doubling of a doubling, which is Jesus himself. Amen.